Well, we welcome everybody to this week's edition of View from the Press Box. I'm Scott Hogan, and joining me is Brad Hallier. And Brad, I don't know that there's probably any better place to start this week than uh, the NFL playoffs. Of course, this is Monday evening. Um, watching the Rams and the Cardinals right now. But, of course, the Kansas City Chiefs got underway on uh, Sunday evening. And uh, we'll have to talk about the first quarter at the start, Brad. But I'd kind of like to skip that and talk about the rest of the game. But, boy, it, it, it didn't get off to the greatest of starts last night for the Chiefs. No, it definitely had some vibes of uh, two years ago, uh, not just the 24 nothing um, deficit against the Houston Texans, but they got off to a pretty rugged start in the AFC Championship game against the, against the Titans that year, too. And uh, it was just a weird feeling, you know, five possessions in. I think they went punt, punt, interception, punt, fumble, scoop six for Pittsburgh. And for whatever reason, that scoop six touchdown by T.J. Watt for Pittsburgh was just the ignition that the Chiefs needed. And they just uh, – they, they looked like the 20 – uh, the, the Super Bowl winning uh, Chiefs in that game where they would just annihilate you with a barrage of touchdowns. I and mean, they scored, what, five touchdowns in a span of about 11 and a half minutes of game time. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you have to I, – I agree with you, Scott. You have to be able to talk about the entire game. And, it, you know, I, I don't think they'll have the slow start this week against Buffalo, but it, that was just – it was just a weird opening. It was. And, and, and you know, I love – Andy Reid, Eric uh, Bieniemy, but if there's uh, one play that I would take, wad up, burn, throw in the trash, bury, I, I, I never want to see McCole Hardman and Daryl Williams with the read option ever again. Yeah, that was uh, something that they haven't shown all year, have they, Scott? I mean, I don't recall them ever showing that kind of formation before. I mean, the only time you would see it is when they do that funky formation down on the goal line when Kelsey um, will take the snap and and maybe make a fake before he runs it, which, of course, we'll get to. He passed out of that formation last night, but uh, they couldn't have botched it anymore. I mean, given the Steelers, the scoop and score out of that deal. But um, but as you mentioned, and I told my wife this, she was watching the game with me last night. Then they just all of a sudden it looked like the 2020 chiefs that could score at will and i said how does a team go from looking that bad to that good in the matter of minutes but they, they did it it's just like you said the, the switch came on and they could do no wrong yeah and it was glorious to see too scott i mean everybody was getting involved i mean you had uh jerry who had a very very good game by the way uh you know tyree kill caught a touchdown pass almost had a second uh which led to the actually the the world famous uh, offensive lineman touchdown, but uh, you know Mahomes was I don't say he was he was poor from the start. The interception was really bad. If for another reason that Kelsey was wide open on that play, it only been, would have been about a two or three yard game. It certainly beat the alternative there. Um, but yeah, it, it was just it was just a weird start. But uh, at the same time, you know the 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 Chiefs show the Chiefs often showed what they were capable of doing. Well, some of those numbers, the uh, boy, Derek McKinnon, he's filling in more than adequately right now. 12 carries, 61 yards on the ground, six receptions, 81 yards. One was for a touchdown. Kelsey, a passing touchdown, a receiving touchdown, 108 yards on five catches. And in Mahomes, 30 of 39, 404, five touchdowns, the interception. And I think the thing I like the most is – the way he spread the ball around, I mean, there was there was Robinson, there was Pringle, there was Hill, there was Kelsey, there was McKinnon, um, there was a Bell, I think, caught one. Uh, and then, of course, an offensive lineman caught one. So um, when they spread the ball around like that, you know, they, they make teams pay for doubling Hill and Kelsey. They, that, that's when their offense is so unpredictable and so good. Yeah, I think that's going to be the the X factor the rest of the way. I mean, I think we can pretty much establish that you know Kelsey is it, playoff Kelsey is an is you know uh, maybe the best tight end of all time, regular greatest tight end of all, of all time. But playoff Kelsey is something else, and we know that Tyree Kill he showed uh, he showed that spurt again uh, on Sunday and give him another week, and I'm sure he'll be if he's not 100 percent, be pretty close to it. 
But when you get the the other guys involved, and I don't think that they have a true number three threat like they had with uh, Sammy Watkins. I just think it's just get open, and if Mahomes throw, throws the ball, catch it. Um, you know, Pr- Pringles had his uh, he had a couple drops, I know, and uh, Robinson. Uh, you know, he he he's he's been off and on, say like uh, with McCole Hardman, but yeah. my goodness, uh, right now. Uh, or especially during the the latter part of the second quarter and most of the second half, the offense was just uh, just incredible. Yeah, Hardman had, had a really good game in the return game. He showed how how dangerous he can be. Um, boy, he can turn that corner as fast as anyone in the return game. You know, we're talking a lot of offense, Brad, but the defense was. I know the Steelers have twenty one points. One was defense. Two were garbage time touchdowns uh they just absolutely smothered the Steelers in that especially the first half and just didn't allow them to do anything and when the, and once the offense got going I mean that thing was over yeah I think the the Steelers offense is pretty inept I mean we we can talk about this uh another time for another day but uh you know seven teams is too much for each conference I think for the playoffs and this, you know the Steelers are a, a good defensive team I think but just inept offensively, and we saw that. I mean, Roethlisberger obviously is a shell of what he used to be. Obviously, he's a first first ballot Hall of Famer and all that, but um, just not a good offensive team. The Steelers are. They're not. Um, let's let's before we move off of the Chiefs, I want to talk about the rest of the of the playoffs this weekend. Um, I saw something that was very interesting. This is a wonderful side note. Um, the what, starting defensive end for the S- Pittsburgh Steelers. I don't know if you saw this, Brad. Uh, Isaiah Loudermilk, 6'7", 293 defensive end. He played eight-man football six years ago at West Elk High School in Howard, Kansas, population of 602. So uh, you want to talk about dispelling the myth that not only can a a kid from eight man play in division one. I believe he went to Wisconsin. Correct. Uh, he, <laughs> you can make it all the way. Cause there he is like six years ago, he's playing at West Elk last night. He was a starting defensive end on a playoff team, the Pittsburgh Steelers in the NFL playoffs. I thought that was a wonderful thing I saw today. Yeah, absolutely. It kind of makes me annoyed that he gets out of the state of Kansas and goes to Wisconsin, but Hey, you know, who can really blame him? I mean, Wisconsin is a Big Ten power. He's produced a lot of NFL talent, and he's just the next one up. Well, let's talk about the rest of the playoffs. Let's talk about the Chiefs' opponent, the Buffalo Bills. Um, got to watch part of the second half when I got back from the Sterling games. Just annihilate New England. The Bills scored seven touchdowns on seven offensive possessions against the Patriots on Saturday night. Just just absolutely drubbing um, the New England Patriots. It, it, it was as good as the Bills, I think, have looked maybe all season. And, and we know that it's been a long time, but back on October 10th in Kansas City, the Bills put a similar drubbing on the Chiefs in their home building, 38-20. to 20. So what do you think of the initial Bills-Chiefs matchup on, I guess that's going to be another Sunday evening game next weekend? Well, you know, the Bills actually had the top-scoring defense in the NFL, and they were third in scoring offense. So my question is, how does a team with the top-scoring defense in the NFL and the third-scoring offense go 10-7? and That's a really good question. They were <laughs> – I, I don't have an answer for that. I mean, uh, I, I think I need- part of it is their, their schedule wasn't overly difficult. Um, they, they, they obviously beat the, 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 the crap out of Kansas City, and we're going to get to that here, uh, to the rematch here in a second. But, you know, the AFC East, you know, Miami had a, had a horrible start, a good ending. New England was, you know, I, I guess they were a deserving playoff team. But really, you know, the, when, the, when the Patriots beat the Bills, it was on that really windy, cold night in Buffalo where New England threw the ball three times. And then he got the DNF Jets. So, I mean, that's that that's that's three and a half layups, I would think. You know, two against the Jets, one against the um, uh, one against the Dolphins, and then you know maybe a half a half one again when you're at home against uh, or when when you play the Patriots or whatever. But um, I guess they actually lost their home game. They did, but yeah, but it's um, just just kind of uh, I don't think their schedule is overly difficult. But obviously they, they 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 show what they're capable of when they beat Kansas City. 
Well, Josh Allen was just was tremendous. And of course, um, he has hurt the Chiefs, not just with his arm, but it's with his legs. Um, he's he's not just the guy that that takes off when things break down. They'll do some of that design runs with him where it may look initially like a pass, but it's truly a run play. So let's let's get into the the rematch. I think certainly the Chiefs defense is a different animal than they were back on October 10th. They are playing at a very, very high level. I mean, Tavarius Ward last night, he was, he was awesome in that secondary, you know, Chris Jones up front. Um, they're, they're getting pressure sometimes with just four. Um, they chose when to use their man and go man to man last night, a lot better than they did in the Cincinnati game. So I like their defense. Obviously the chiefs offense has been better in the second half. Um, so a a tight ball game, who do you give the edge to in this one? Well, you know, Scott, the thing that I don't think we can put too much stock into that first game. I mean, I I think from maybe the bills perspective, they can look at it and say, Hey, we've won an arrowhead already. We can do it again. But here's why I don't put too much stock into that first game. As far as what we're going to see upcoming on Sunday, one Chris Jones didn't apply. He was hurt. Melvin Ingram had not been traded yet from the Steelers. Yep. So that's two of your best off uh, defensive players. Uh, you can make an argument your two best defensive players were not on the field that day. One was hurt and one, one was not with the team yet. The other thing is that the Chiefs' offense was in that rut at the time. Uh, I will. It's not going to happen. The Chiefs are not going to lose the turnover battle this Sunday uh, by four. Now, they did lose it against Pittsburgh by one, but – Look, I, I just I just don't see that happening. I you know if, if there if anybody wins a turnover battle, it's probably going to be by one, and you know Buffalo's not going to win by four this time in in the turnovers. So you got that, and you know I I, I think that with Buffalo, the Allen will be the key. I think, and when I say the key with his legs, that you already made a you already talked about that, Scott. But, you know, he's not going to run a ton. He's, he's going to run, you know, six or seven times on design runs. He might get a scramble in there, too. But of those six or seven, is he going to get 50 to 60 yards or is he going to get, you know, 25, 30 yards? I think that's going to be a big uh, factor in the game is how many rushing yards Josh Allen gets. Yeah, because I, I think the real key to watch there, you know, the Chiefs like to do that press man a lot. And if you get a play where – three or four of your receivers are running go routes or routes down the field. Defenders have to turn and run. And then he takes off. That's when you can really get burned. If he gets past where the linebackers would be and everybody else has run with the receivers, that's when you run 20, 30 yards, you know, at a pop before those defenders can get turned back around to, to get Josh Allen. So I think that's a big key. The other one, what do you feel like, the the level of the Kansas City offensive line is playing at last night. We saw Trey Brown have some problems last night at that left tackle. Um, Mahomes getting sacked from that side, getting pressure from that side. You got your third string right tackle and Mike Rimmers. Um, a lot of people are going to have trouble with T.J. Watt, so don't get me wrong there. He struggled with Watt at times last night. What do you feel like the where the, the Kansas City line is right now? It's uh... – it's it's still it's a, it's in a good place. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, you know, T.J. Watson, elite player, maybe the best defensive uh, lineman in the entire NFL. Uh, Buffalo does have some good pass rushers, though. But the thing that I do think that what we'll see with this game is that, you know, one of the X factors is Jarek McKinnon. And here's what I mean when I think that Jarek McKinnon's an X factor for the Chiefs is that someone made the observation. I completely agree with this on Twitter. He's fresh right now. He has not had the wear and tear on his body this year. So he's actually playing like, you know, while, and I'm not trying to say that everyone's, you know, banged up and they can't move or anything, but I just think that Jeremy Kinnon just got a little bit of an extra, you know, pop in his step right now just because he is, he doesn't have the wear and tear on, on his body. So he looked really good last night. If there was one criticism I think of the Chiefs against the Steelers, especially offensively, other than that start, is I kind of wish they had run the ball a little bit more because the Steelers don't have a good run defense. I just, you know, they just didn't really take advantage of that. But once once Mahomes got the uh, got the passing game going, it didn't really matter anyway. Well, and you'll get Daryl Williams another week to get the. I think it's a toe healthy. Um, Clyde Edwards Elaire um, certainly could be available, so they may have a full a full range of weapons um, in the backfield that they can throw at him 
on Sunday. So that's that's the Sunday evening game. Uh, let's look at some of the other games. Um, let, let's let's talk a little bit if you want to before I get to the Cowboys because I, I got a rant to go on here. Uh, Vegas goes to Cincinnati and loses by a touchdown. Philadelphia, I think you already alluded to the, the, the – well, I guess they weren't the seventh seed. The, the seventh seed is is my rant coming up. The uh, the 49ers, I believe, were the uh, seventh seed. No, it was the Eagles. It was the Eagles. Was it the Eagles? Well, okay. The, San Francisco, I guess, well, they were the sixth. Excuse me. They were the sixth. The seventh seed, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, uh, got embarrassed. I mean, there's no other way. That Philly-Tampa game was 31-15, to 15, but what was that not – I think it was, it was 31 nothing in the fourth nothing. quarter. Yeah, so um, no surprise in those two games, uh, 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 Philly and the Pittsburgh games. What do you think about Vegas-Cincinnati, and then we'll, we'll get to Dallas-San Francisco? Oh, man. that the, the I, I hate blaming the refs or really saying that they had any kind of impact, but my goodness, that touchdown pass where the whistle blew when the ball was in flight, the rules are very clear, Scott. If the ball is in play at any point and the, and the whistle blows, it is dead on impact. The play is dead. And the, the referees try to sell it to us that it came after the ball was caught. So to me, Scott, that's one of two things. Either they're completely inept or they're lying about it. And it just that, that just really bothered me that – look, look did, did the Bengals deserve the touchdown there? I mean, you can make the argument, but you did see the Raiders in the end zone actually stop. When that when the whistle had blown, that's that's what you're supposed to do, right? You play to the whistle. Mm-hmm. And I just if uh, the better team won, the better team won. Let's let's get that yeah. up front. The Bengals are the better team. They deserve to win that game. Uh, Derek Carr fell apart at the end, and that's really too bad because I think the world of Derek Carr. But man, Scott, I just can't get over that the Bengals scored a touchdown, and the referees gave it to them despite the fact that the whistle blew when the ball was in flight, and the rules say very clear when that happens. The ball is dead. The play is over. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what they're thinking there of allowing that play to stand. It was, as a black eye, you know, we try to, you know, I, I, I personally tried to make myself as I'm calling games this year, especially Sterling College games, as people know, I get very wrapped up in when I'm doing them, of not banging on the officials because they're doing um, the best job that they can, but. Boy, we but keep Scott, there's a big difference between KCAC basketball and yeah. the NFL. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these KCAC officials, I mean, they're they're doing it for sheer love of the game. I mean, making a little bit extra money. Yeah, but, you know, the NFL ref- referees are supposed to be the very, very, very best of the best. And to have a mistake like that in a playoff game, I go back even to that, the uh, Derek Johnson sack on Marcus Mariota in the t- uh, when the Chiefs lost to the Titans that one year, and they said forward progress was stopped. How could forward progress be stopped? As soon as he hit him, the ball came out. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's just so unfortunate that it's the playoffs, and here, here we are talking about um, officiating and um, trying to think. I don't believe in any other of the playoff games that there was much um, – to do about the officiating except this game i guess that's a good thing but in a way it's a bad thing because this one just stands out so much yeah and i i, I agree i know some people are in and i hate to rub salt in the wound here i know we're upset with the officiating with the cowboys but look i got no no dog in that fight i was actually kind of hoping the cowboys would score at the end just for the the dramatic effect but uh I actually felt like every other game was officiated well that I watched. I didn't get a chance to, to – I, I more or less listened to the Raiders-Bengals game coming back from Lawrence. But, man, Scott, it's just uh, – that, that just disappointed me that the game – again, the better team won. The Bengals deserve to win that game. But, man, it was just – I just can't wrap my mind around that. Well, let me, let me start off my Dallas-San Francisco with saying this. The officials had no bearing on the outcome – of the Dallas Cowboys losing yet again in the playoff yesterday to the San Francisco 49ers. You cannot run the football down the middle of the field without a timeout when there's less than 14 seconds and expect to get up and spike the ball without, which is clearly in the rules, that was officiated right. The official has to grab the football and spot it himself. You cannot spot it for him, Dak Prescott. Should have stopped, gave the ball to the official the minute he got there. He could have got it down. I still don't think they have time to spike it. 
I don't, I, I completely disagree with Mike McCarthy. That was the wrong play call. You throw another pass or you throw it away or you throw one into the end zone. And also a team that commits 14 penalties and is the most penalized team in the league on the season also does not deserve to move on in the playoffs. The better team in that game yesterday was the San Francisco 49ers. Yeah, let's be honest, Scott. And the only reason, the only reason that the Cowboys had a chance at the end was a terrible interception <laughs> by Jimmy Green. Doesn't throw the interception and the 49ers are laughing their way to the end of the game. It probably ends, honestly, Scott, it probably ends 23 to 7. Yes. If Garoppolo does not throw that interception, he throws that interception. The Cowboys got some life and, and credit to the Cowboys for taking advantage of that. But that was really the only time that the, I thought that the Cowboys might actually pull this one out was after that terrible interception by Jimmy Garoppolo. But other than that, yes, Scott, I agree. The 49ers were the better team. And I'll just kind of give my two cents on that last play. Yeah, 14 seconds and no time. Asking, where were they? About the 40-yard line? Mm, yeah, somewhere there, just inside. I think what you do there, you can do one of two things. They had been moving the ball actually very well. And I think you can maybe do another swing pass. Get a first down because I think it was second and one. So, you know, get in there, swing pass, and, and get to the sidelines where maybe you have, you know, 10 or 9 seconds left. That's enough time then. And let's say they gain five, six, seven yards. So now you're about to the 33-yard line. You now have two chances, essentially, to throw the ball into the end zone. You, you know, your first one is probably a quick pass, you know, just to make sure. You essentially have eight seconds. So, you know, quick pass, you know, to, to the end zone, and then you have another chance after that. So, or you can even do essentially two or three passes to the end zone. I, to, for the life of me, when, when Prescott started running that ball, I think my literal words were, what are you doing? Mike, you can't run it without a timeout. <laughs> you know, I, I, I sit there, and even when the game was 23-10, to 10, I think Dallas maybe was driving, and they got that touchdown. I looked over, and bless her heart, my, my wife watched football with me all day yesterday, I said, Dallas is going to do the same thing they have done for years in the playoffs. They are going to get this close, and they're going to look like they may win, and then they're not going to because that's what the Dallas Cowboys have done and continue to do when these games are on the line. And, it, and you know, back to the, the, the running there, and you talk about the swing pass, I will agree San Francisco was going to that unique defense where they put like two defenders on each sideline. They were not going to allow another one of those – 10, 15 yard passes and let the Cowboys just simply get out of bounds. They had, they were in a sideline prevent along with their safeties back at the goal line. Um, they were trying to force Dallas's hand at that point, but I still, you cannot run it. I mean, the, it has to be incomplete, intercepted, a penalty or something like that. You cannot get tackled in the field of play at that point. It, it just, you know, it's such a horrible start. And like I said, you, you can't be the most penalized team in the league and then commit 14 of them. And when they're showing replays, these are penalties they are committing. I mean, it's not like the officials were making this stuff up or it was a close call. You watch, it's like, yeah, that's a hold. Oh, yep, yeah, that's a face mat or whatever. It just, it's undisciplined teams are where they deserve to be at home watching. Yeah, I remember that hands of the face penalty that, uh, later in the game that the yeah. Cowboys committed, and I just you know when the they, they're announcing the flag, and I'm just thinking, boy, that better have been an obvious penalty to be calling it in this situation. And then they show the replay. Yep, that's pretty obvious right there. So how about um, the def holdings where the the defensive lineman on a running play, an offensive lineman and tackles him on a running play? Yes, on a running play behind <laughs> the play. I mean, that, that that's just undisciplined. Football, and that goes, that's Mike McCarthy. That's yeah. his responsibility. I mean, there's already talked about, will Jerry Jones fire Mark McCar Mike McCarthy? Until he fires himself, it's not going to matter. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Uh, you know, Jimmy Johnson, I think, can be really thanked for Jerry Jones being in the Hall of Fame and Jerry Jones having Jerry World and all that. Uh, without Jimmy Johnson, I mean, who knows what would have happened to the 90s Cowboys dynasty because I think that uh, 
Jerry, when, when, if Jimmy Johnson goes before Jerry Jones, uh, Jimmy Johnson's eulogy should be delivered by Jerry Jones, and Jerry Jones should be thanking him for everything that he has right now. Oh, he should be. And, you know, the, the talent that Jimmy Johnson assembled, the trained monkey should have been able to win a Super Bowl. Oh, wait, one did. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you, Scott, it's, um, you know, obviously I'm not a Cowboys fan and I enjoy watching them burn, but uh, I know your passion is, 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 uh, is legit. And I got, I know some good Raiders fans out there and they're hurting right now. Um, but the NFL playoffs, it can just be a wild ride. And, you know, sometimes I can just kind of, uh, for, for years, I was on the other side of that as a Chiefs fan. And these last few years, uh, we've been a lot luckier these last few years. Yeah, I had to soak it up in the 90s because, boy, it's been a r- bumpy road since then for any Cowboys fan, that's for sure. So uh, our matchups will have uh, – well, we're yet to determine all of them. We know Buffalo is going to Kansas City and Cincinnati. Um, let me look here on the schedule. They have got to be – We're going to Tennessee. Going to Tennessee, the number one seed – and then uh, the Packers, uh, they're going to get the winner of Rams-Cardinals, which is 21 nothing early third Rams. And then Tampa gets San Francisco. So do you see any upsets uh, in those games coming up on the uh, weekend to the divisional round? Well, first of all, the, uh, the, I think they reseed the teams, don't they, Scott? So I think San Francisco actually goes to uh, – they're the lowest seed remaining, so I think they're the ones who will be going to uh, to Lambeau. Is that correct? Oh, yes, cor- that's correct. So that would send um, – The winner of that game to uh, to uh, Tampa then. That's correct. You, you're, you're correct. They do reseed. So that would have – looks like the Rams at Tampa and San Francisco at Green Bay. Uh, my, my first thought is – you know, the Rams, the Rams have beaten Tampa Bay once this year. Um, to me, if there is an upset, I don't know how big of an upset I would consider if the Chiefs lost the Buffalo. I think that the chance, the best chances for upsets are on the NFC side. I could see San Francisco going in and giving Green Bay fits with the way they can run the ball. Um, you wonder, I always worry about Kyle Shanahan calling plays in critical situations. We've seen that in play out over history in favor of his opponent. Um, but I could, I think if there's going to be an upset, I think it's going to be on the NFC side. Yeah, I would say so. I can, uh, I, I also want to consider it much of an upset of Cincinnati uh, one at Tennessee. So, uh, you know, the, the only thing I will say about San Francisco and green Bay is that at this point in the season, you don't see often the superior quarterback, losing especially at home now Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes I'm not going to say that Mahomes you know if Buffalo wins it's not because you know Mahomes is inferior and it's and if the Chiefs win it's not going to be because Mahomes is superior I mean that's a pretty close uh quarterback matchup is what I'm trying to say but you know Garoppolo against Rodgers oh man I just have a hard time betting on Garoppolo right now He's more of a caretaker. I actually think Alex Smith is a better quarterback than Garoppolo. Um, I, ha- I have a hard time because of that betting in against Aaron Rodgers. Kind of the same thing with Tampa, although Tampa's pretty banged up right now, and, and the Rams have a lot of weapons, and Stafford's had a very good season. I think uh, in the, on, on the NFC side, if the, either of those road teams win, it's, it's more likely the Rams. Oh, you're, you're, you're talking my, my speak right there is if, you know, what we're hoping for <laughs> – it's certainly the Rams to win, and as we would love to see the Bengals uh, beat Tennessee because then if the Chiefs would win, then the AFC Championship game would for, correct me if I'm wrong, the fourth year in a row be in Kansas City. Yep, and actually since that game's on Saturday, if the Bengals do win, that just increases the stakes for the Chiefs and the Bills because the winner of that game will host the AFC Championship game. Yeah, that's right. So, boy, it's going to be it's gonna be a lot of fun. I I enjoyed watching this weekend i will enjoy watching next weekend's playoff games well you had a a front row seat for the kansas jayhawks this past weekend Uh, west virginia came to town and right i listened to unfortunately the first half as i was going to winfield for warrior basketball and didn't get to listen to the second half so you got the the better of the two halves for sure in the second half where KU looked awful at one point in the first half, ended up coming back, got a two-point lead, and then just routed 
the Mountaineers 85 to 59. So take us through um, what the Jayhawks did in that second half. Well, first of all, the defense was very, very good. This team's defensive identity is starting to come through right now. And guess we had a good game, David McCormick. I mean, David McCormick. First (laughs) of all, Scott, let's let's give the kid a lot of credit right now. He got benched for a few games. And there was one game when he got benched where he only played like nine or ten minutes and scored like one point and had four rebounds or something like that. Uh, Was a non-factor. I mean, he he was a, a, a minuscule role player. He took it. He took it like a man. He 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 did not pout about it. He didn't whine about it. He didn't quit. He took the coaching that Bill Self had given him, and Bill Self put it back out there, and he produced. Now, the, obviously, the key with David McCormick, can he continue that consistency? I don't think we're looking for whatever he had the other day, like uh, 19 and 15 or whatever he had the other day. But you know what? If, if Dave, uh, you know, they play Oklahoma on Tuesday and K-State this weekend. If Dave goes out and averages, say, 14 and 8 in those two games, he's had a good week. So that, to me, was the biggest thing. Ochak Baji had another good game, and so did Jalen Wilson. Jalen Wilson looked very good. He looked like the Jalen Wilson of last year. So uh, definitely it was an encouraging win. And, Scott, how about this? Kansas was the only team among the top six in the Big 12 standings to win Saturday. The other wins came from the bottom four teams. Yeah, and the the shocking thing, not that KU is now in first place in the Big 12, 14 and 12, 3 and 1 in conference play, was that Baylor not got beat, not got beat twice, got beat twice in a row at home after being the number one team in the country. It was just, it was shocking to see Baylor not drop one, but drop a second game last week, both at home. Yeah, first team in the history of the uh, poll to be ranked number one and to lose two home games in one week. So that really tells you what kind of a historical weekend. Not good for the Baylor Bears. I just think that the Big 12 is going to be like this, Scott. Um, I, you know, I think K-State, when healthy, they're going to win some games, man. I know that they kind of struggled to start the Big 12 play, but part of that was because of COVID, and they just didn't have anybody. And I think even Bruce Weber missed a couple games. So I, I think this is going to be – a really interesting race in the Big 12. Uh, I think the unfortunate thing is they're all going to beat up on each other, and whoever wins the, you know, the Big 12 and maybe then the Big 12 tournament, maybe at looking at best of three seed or something like that. But, boy, I tell you, those Big 12 teams are going to be tested. This is as good as I've ever seen the Big 12. Absolutely agree. It's going to be a wild, wild conference. I, I think the, the conference winner could legitimately have four losses in conference play, uh, three or four losses, I don't think is going to negate you from winning the Big 12 this year. It's going to be a ton of fun, as you mentioned, at OU Tuesday, at K-State Saturday this week for Kansas. Well, the Sterling Warriors, men and women, again, uh, uh, busy week last week. We, we already talked about their their Monday games. They stayed home on Thursday Um and played Ottawa, then went to Southwestern on Saturday. And the Lady Warriors, Brad, just keep on rolling. They they survive a hot shooting first half of Ottawa, blow them out in the second half, 88-61. They go on the road without their head coach on Saturday. Coach Bass, a little bit under the weather, didn't take the trip to a, a Southwestern team really struggling and just ran them out of the building, 101 101- to 53 uh, the game on saturday and then we'll talk a little bit the thursday game as well becomes the third player that's in this lineup this year brad to eclipse the 1000 point mark she bailey albright and emily hendrickson so that's that's quite a trio to have out there three players over 1000 points in their college career that just tells you uh how talented and deep that this team is. I mean, they just they, they can get production from so many different players and not just production. And we're not talking about the potential to score 10 and 12 points. We're talking about any of those kids can go off for, you know, 20, 25 points on any given day. And that's just really what makes them so tough. Yeah. Albright, 23 in the game against Ottawa. Wilson, 17 and 7. Hendrickson, 13. And then Corinne Clayson is just coming off the bench. And she's, she's the Emily Hendrickson of this season. She comes in looking to score – she had 15, and Sterling shot almost 59% uh, in the win against Ottawa. 
at home on Thursday. I said, then they went to, to Winfield. Let me bring that up here. The page is not cooperating. And I said, and just were able to uh, run them off the floor. 101, 253, a team clearly struggling and tried to give them their best punch, but just couldn't stay with them. Albright again, she's always between 20 and 25. She had 25 in this game. Wilson, 16. Corinne Clayson, 21 off the bench. And Lauren Carmack, which was great to see. Seven of eight from the floor. She had 16. Again, they shot 59% in this game. And just, they did, that. two of the teams in the lower half of the conference, they did what they needed to do, got the job done, and and played well doing it. That was really nice to see this week. Yeah, just, uh, they're call, I've, I understand they call them the Basset Hounds. So I tell you what, uh, the way the way that they play, uh, I tell you what, they get after it like a bunch of uh, hounds out there. So it, it's really it's it's a fun team to watch. I kind of wish I would get over there and see some games because uh, I you know I just I listen to some of your broadcasts and I see the box scores and it's just it has to be a lot of fun for the Sterling College community because I said this before it wasn't easy for Coach Bassett to take over for someone like Lonnie Cruz. But boy, she has done a spectacular job of molding, of not only carrying on Lonnie Cruz's tradition, but molding the program into her own image. So I tell you, it's uh, it's it's uh, or her own vision, I should say. It's uh, it's it's really been something remarkable, and the Sterling College community has got to be just uh, so proud of what they've accomplished and will accomplish. Well, and this. Now their body comes up in the midweek Wednesday game, so they get a full week to prepare for Tabor coming up on Saturday. And right now, the way the standings have worked out, there were some um, unexpected teams losing this past week. So Sterling, with just the one loss in conference, there are two games up on Tabor. Tabor gets Southwestern on Wednesday, expected to win that. And everybody else has got four or more losses right now. So what's what's on the line Saturday, Brad? Sterling wins this game at home. They would have the head-to-head on Tabor and a three-game lead on the rest of the conference. Tabor wins. That lead has shrunk to one game. They've split the season series and then game on with both Sterling and Tabor as Sterling follows – or Tabor follows Sterling as far as scheduling – so when they go through the gauntlet of the, the Francisco coming up, Tabor would fall them right through there, and it would get really interesting. But boy, it, it certainly wouldn't wrap up the conference, Brad, especially with uh, the way the season has gone with with COVID forfeits and that thing um, for some teams. But boy, it'd go a long ways towards solidifying a conference championship, beating Tabor on Saturday. Yeah, the Sterling College community uh, obviously wants to see that so they can kind of relax a little bit and enjoy the rest of the season. The neutrals probably want to see a Tabor win just to have a little bit of drama involved with the conference race toward the end. Well, on the men's side, Brad, the 94-90 loss at home to Ottawa for the men. Uh, Again, they had a, I think it was a two or three point lead at halftime, had that bad stretch as they often do to start the second off second half got down 13 and, and Ottawa just kept it right out there around 10 or 12 points till the last couple of minutes Sterling got within I believe three once and fell by four so especially after that absolute uh, 58 point loss the Oklahoma Westland on Wednesday you were taking moral victories and the coach was as well that they had you know played a, a good team close but then turned around Saturday and got run off the floor 96 to 50 at Southwestern. That got out of hand in the first half. Didn't get any better in the second half. And this team just continues to struggle to find identity. You can you can see that it's in the back of their mind, even when they have a lead, when they hit a bad stretch, they just don't trust their instincts to keep playing. And boy, it it was it was rough. It was really rough Saturday to see them perform like that after the Ottawa game. Yeah, I mean the Ottawa game. You just, I mean, again, you don't want to take too many moral victories, but the fact that they came back from that drubbing by Oklahoma Wesleyan and played a good first half, and then even gave them a chance to to maybe you know try to uh, rally 
and win that game. I mean, that that to me speaks volumes right there. Because when they got, you know, the, like you said, 10 to 12 points, I could have just been, okay, here we go again and, and lost the game by 20. But they didn't. They showed something in that game, Scott. But then to follow it up with another stinker, that's just disappointing. I mean, uh, I, you know, you just want to see a little more consistency from this team. And it's obvious that, cons- that, that consistency isn't going to be there you know, even, every, you know, throughout a game. I mean, they're going to, you know, follow up a good stretch with a bad stretch, you know, a good first half with a bad second half or vice versa. But you at least want to see, like, what they did with Ottawa. So, so, you know, carry that kind of uh, effort into the next game or whatever. And uh, we're just not getting that right now. Yeah, and they'll have, again, you look at the schedule, um, what you would call, uh, I hate to say, you know, just winnable games. Because, I mean, you play well. You would think you could be in any game. In, in, in the conference play, but you certainly Tabor would be one at home. So, um, again, it's going to be tough. They got a full week to, I guess, prepare for Tabor, but also a full week to sit on that loss at Southwestern. So um, we will see what they can do. Again, those will be five and seven o'clock games on Saturday um, over at the Gleason Center. Boy, I tell you, it should be a lot of fireworks that night, especially in the girls game and of course this week also is mid-season tournament weeks are upon us um one tournament we're going to cover the canton galva tournament i'm told that has been canceled so we have action from burton uh, st john sterling halstead and hillsborough this week brad i know you're going to be i'm looking here at the schedule you're going to be over in at the rep tournament on Tuesday, I'll be starting over at the Hillsborough tournament. I've got an intriguing girls game. Hillsborough and Heston, when you first look at the records, six and three and three and four, um, Hillsborough having the better record, you think, wow, that's, you know, Hill, Hills Heston's down a little bit. Until I started looking at Heston's schedule, Brad, they're three and four. Two of their losses are to number two in class 3A Nickerson. One of those was only by seven. Their other losses, number seven in class 3A Southeast of Saline, and number eight, Garden Plain, in class 2A. And they have a 10-point victory over number nine in 3A Smoky Valley. So I think this is intriguing. They have a lot of experience back on this Heston team against a really good, talented younger Hillsborough team I think this 3-6 matchup on Tuesday is is going to be a dandy yeah you know that Heston always has been bringing it I mean they they, they lost by seven once this year to Nickerson 35-28 and you know over there does such a great job I mean he may not have the horses that these other teams have but I tell you what he's he's got some talent still and he molds those girls into a very good defensive team usually and because of that they're going to be able to overcome maybe some of the talent and we've seen that this year. They 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 they're in these games and they're well tested. This this is not a team I would want to come uh, play come uh, come Substate. No, and that matchup Hillsborough Heston is one I, I I would desperately love to see on the boys' side as a final matchup. Well, that would be a uh, it'd be the number one and number two teams in class two and three A if those two met. Um, so that that's a matchup I'm hoping for. Uh, over at the Sterling tournament, Brad, that girls' side is amazingly loaded with number, you know, Sterling number one and two A Hugoton, one of the top teams in three A Southeast of Saline. We already mentioned them ranked. Smoky Valley uh, was also right around nine or ten in Class Three A. Those are all on the girls' side over at Sterling, so that could be fantastic as well. Yeah, Sterling tournament is always a, uh, a pretty good tournament, or it seems like it, especially on the girls' side these last few years. And, uh, you know, we end up seeing the Hugoton versus Sterling championship game, which is not a given. Uh, that, that, that's that got the potential to be one of the games of the year. Yeah, I had the, I had that game last year. It was a fantastic, fantastic matchup. I hope to, uh, I hope those two will match up again. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you – think you're going to see play out at the rep tournament this week well i know haven i got the haven halstead game and boy i thought I, you know gotta give uh, lonnie paramore a lot of credit i mean it seems like every year that haven graduates some good players and you think okay they, they still might be kind of good this year but probably not no man they just keep winning i mean the, it's just remarkable what he's done the, the consistency and i'm when i say consistency i'm not talking about like 10 and 10 every year I mean, they, they they're winning you know anywhere from 13 to 17 games every year so 
what 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 Paramore has done at, at Haven and the, and the program he's built over there, you know, it's just kind of unfortunate with the geography where they have to usually play the likes of Heston or Halston yeah. when Halston won the state championship a few years ago. But uh, I, I really like what uh, Lonnie Paramore has done over at Haven, especially these last few years. Because like I said, it always seems like that they're hit hard by graduation. I always think, you know, they'll probably they'll, they'll be good, maybe not, not quite as good. Nope, they're, they're still pretty darn good. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Consistency, what, what, what can you say uh, more about Haven? There always seem to be a factor. And like you said, they always get stuck, as I think they did again this year um, in a brutal substate. And that, that, like you said, geography is something I wish we could get a little bit away from, but uh, it is what it is. Uh, the Bueller teams will be playing over in Salina. Also mentioned we have action from Burton and St. John, all those tournaments going on this week. And of course you and I next week are certainly hoping when the schedule comes out, we'll get a, a, a lion's share of that Haven girls tournament, the Wildcat Classic. That, that tournament is always loaded as well. Yeah, I, I can't remember if Dwight Roper, the Haven girls basketball coach, I can't remember if he said that Notre Dame or UConn is coming down this year. So, uh, so that just seems, seems like how good of the tournament. I mean, I can't even begin to tell you how many times where the bottom seed in that tournament is is like four and four or something like that. Or we'll see three undefeated teams. I mean, it's yeah, it, it's one of the best girls tournaments in the state of Kansas. Yeah, I know last year the worst record was a 500 record. And I think that was Rose Hill. Uh, when the tournament started last year, they were, like you said, were like five and five or uh, something to that effect when that tournament uh, got going. And for our full tournament schedule, go to adasterradio.com and the sports page. Of course, the schedule will be evolving with working pieces um, throughout the week, but it's, it'll be a fun week this week on Ad Astra. A couple other um, little notes before we get to our final thoughts. I, I saw this, Brad, and it just, I don't know if it, it probably aggravated me more than anything where the college football playoff committee met and they had us all worked up, Brad, that they were going to get something done here in the next couple of years, you know, maybe eight or 12 teams. Well, the last thing I read on this is every, all of that is pretty much been put on hold until after the current um, agreement expires with just four teams in 2026 because the ACC voted against expansion. What do, what do you think about that? That's given one conference way too much power. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, also, I mean, well, wouldn't, wouldn't the ACC want it expanded? The only team they've ever gotten in is Clemson, and they didn't have anybody in this year. Yeah, I, I that doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, come on, that's let's and don't give me this whole. Well, we want to wait till the current deal expires. No, come on, rip it up. Let's let, let's get going. Let's give let's give the fans what they want. This is what the fans want. I'm not saying 100 percent of them, but I bet if you took a poll of you know 100 fans at all the FBS schools, you're going to have probably at least 90 at every school saying yes, expand the playoff. And then there was somebody speculating that the ACC may be doing this to try to force Notre Dame to become a, a full member in the ACC, you know, whatever. It's just, it, it, it aggravates me that everybody knows it's the right thing to do and it's the right thing to do much sooner than 2026, but yet it has to be unanimous and one conference can hold it up. I think it's kind of, it's kind of laughable to me in a way. Yeah, no, look, look, Notre Dame football is not going to join a conference anytime soon. Way too much money involved for Notre Dame. Frankly, and if I'm a Notre Dame fan and I'm in the University of Notre Dame, why would I want to join a conference for football with all the money that they make? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. They've, they've got a lot of pull, uh, pull, and frankly, with their national brand, it's going to be a very sweet deal for Notre Dame. Like, hey, be ranked in the top ten, we'll give you a spot or something like that. Uh the ACC can keep dreaming. It's not going to happen. Yeah, so that that was a, another thing that was aggravating and laughable, as was one thing we talked a little bit about last week, Brad, was the Novak Djokovic situation um, with the Australian Open that he had um, been given a medical exemption as he uh, is not vaccinated, had had COVID in December, went ahead and traveled to Australia, was detained at the border, visa revoked, then by the ruling of a court, it was overturned. He was practicing, getting ready for the tournament. And he was deported as the tournament <laughs> began. Um, I, 
I don't even know how to describe this. I mean, again, a, a country can decide what laws they have. But then when you when the guy travels all the way under the knowledge that he's been given exemption, he'll be allowed in the country to play his tournament. And then it's not taken away once, but twice. And it's done by a single individual the second time against the ruling of a court. It's 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 discredit. I mean, this is a black eye for Australia. This this looks really bad. Um, and, and, it, and it's kind of disgraceful as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it's um, I I, I, I kind of wish at times I was a little bit more of a of a tennis fan, where I would take more of an interest in something like this. But I do I was following it because obviously Djokovic is not just best player in the world, but one of the best players in history of tennis. And to see essentially you know the best player in the world not get a chance to to play, I mean the 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 the, the talking out of both sides of the mouth. Yeah, Hey, you know, hey, go ahead and travel. We'll get you this exemption. And then he gets there, and they, they look. He he should have either traveled once he got on that plane. He should have known I, I can play. And if he's not going to play, then he then he, there was no sense in him even traveling. I mean, that's that's the thing for me is if he's not going to play, fine. Yeah. Tell him that he doesn't have to waste his time in going there. Or if he gets on that plane with the thought that he can play, let him play. And he's defending champion, if I remember right, as well. And that makes it makes it just even a little bit worse as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) Yeah, we always like to see the defending champions and uh, especially in tennis, you know, they kind of develop a repertoire with their with their uh, with the fans at these four majors. And, yeah, it's uh, well, we're not going to see them this year. No. So that and there's already (laughs) this is amazing. There's already talk that they may not allow them at the French Open either. (laughs) <laughs> oh man come on that's that's only months away i mean we don't know what's going to be happening in a few months i i can't believe that the french open we would even be thinking about that right now why would you even make that comment right right now? right I mean, yeah we don't know what's going to be happening in three months i mean come on yeah it it yeah well we better probably ought to let that that lay but yeah i just thought we had to kind of we've talked about it a little bit last week i figured we'd follow up on it um this week well that's uh the regular topics I had for this week. So we'll, we'll get your final thoughts. All right, Scott, I kind of wanted just to share um, another title nine story. Uh, when I say title nine story, you know, with this being the 50th anniversary of title nine, I kind of wanted to share some of my favorite stories through the years of covering women's athletics. And last week I shared one about how the Hutchinson community college women, uh, women's basketball team uh, broke one of the great, uh, home court winning streaks in history. And this week I, I wanted to share another good one. When I moved first moved out to Garden City in, in late 1999, obviously, Scott, you know, I'm a big soccer guy, and they had added girls soccer for 2000, for, for the spring of 2000. So I thought, oh, okay, this will be cool. I can cover some high school soccer. Well, Garden City wasn't very good, Scott. That first year, it was actually the second year of the two-year scheduling cycle, so they didn't play a full schedule. They just played, um, I think, 11 games, and they went 0-11. And frankly, they weren't close in most of those games. You know, I remember covering a few games and thinking, wow, they're 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 bad. You know, just scoring a goal was good enough usually. But there was one game where they lost just four to three to Wichita Independence. And why do why why am I bringing that up? Is because the next year, Garden City lost their first 10 games. So they had lost their first 21 games as a program in girls' soccer. Then a Friday came and I had my choice ball doubleheader or the girls soccer game. And Nine times out of ten, I probably would have gone to the baseball game, given that Garden City had pretty good baseball back then. Of course, Garden City girls' soccer was not very good. But they were playing Wichita Independent. And I thought to myself, you know what? They almost won that game last year. They lost 4-3. to three. Maybe this is the game they finally get the win. Well, I darn if I didn't call it, Scott, because even though Wichita Independent like dominated the game, I think the shots were something like 30-8. to eight. Garden City scored the only goal of the game. And I just remember going out onto the field when the game ended and hearing the screams and seeing the hugs and the smiles. And for those girls who had played on both teams, I just couldn't imagine what that was like for them. To walk off the field for 21 games without a victory or even a tie. And a lot of those games, they would lose 7-0, 8-0, 10-0. They lost once like 12 to nothing, which means that that was the score at halftime because in high school soccer, you have to play the first half. But if it's 10 goals or more, the game ends. And... Another thing that stood out to me uh, was seeing uh, the coach, a guy named John Schaefer, shaking hands with some people. And then he was kind of all by himself walking back to the bench to talk to his team. And he just kind of squatted on the field. And, you know, his body was shaking. I could tell he was crying. 
And I just remember thinking how cool that was, how much it meant to him, how much it meant to those girls to get that win. And just, you know, without Title IX, we may never have seen something like that. And I don't know, Scott, I mean, to, to lose 21 straight games in anything is a lot. But in soccer over the, over the course of two seasons when you're never close and you're going out there, you'll probably be you're, you're probably laughed at at school sometimes, laughed at when, you know, you show up in the bus. Oh, this is Garden State. We got this one in the bag. And then you get that win. And just how good it had to have felt to those girls. And it's just something I'll never forget. It's just the, the smiles, the screams, the hugs, the tears from the coach. Wow. It was it was just a great moment. Those are truly the type of games that, that you'll never forget. You know, such a such a big upset. But like you said, so many losses in a row. And, and, and the, the feeling of, of just that whole cloud being lifted in that one moment. That Those, those are very very special times and those, those those are fun stories i i enjoy hearing well uh today of course when i'm recording is monday brad so uh my my final thoughts are going to go on the holiday that we're observing today martin luther king day um of course the great civil rights leaders of the 50s and, and 60s um did so much for the the advancement of rights of not just african-american but of minorities as well and sometimes, Brad, I think when we think about the world of sports, which we talk about a lot, you know, we talk about the Jackie Robinsons and those who were were great pioneers in those sports. But I think Martin Luther King, certainly his his reach went well, be, well into the sports world as well. What he did and you look now at, at, at the sports world and how many um, outstanding uh, minority and African-American athletes that really, quite frankly, dominate some of the sports and have had the opportunities. That was because of um, Dr. King and what and what he did. And I think Dr. King throughout his work, I think that he knew they probably his life was not going to be a long one just because of, you know, he ruffled <laughs> he ruffled feathers every minute of the day. But um, what he did and what we see now uh, that the opportunities that African-Americans and minorities have, I, I think is such something that should be remembered. And yet, do we still have a ways to go? Certainly. I mean, I look in the NFL, Brad, and somebody's going to have to explain to me how Eric Bieniemy is not a head coach. Um, not that I want him away from the Chiefs. I love him calling plays, but he should have been a head coach this year, probably the year before. And those qualified maybe more than qualified applicants for some reason keep getting passed over at some of the major sports so there's there's still a long way to go but um there's more and more opportunities every day and i i just think that we should remember that uh, dr king was a major reason why we're seeing what we're seeing today yeah i mean gosh i mean you just look at the the nfl and you know, I mean, there was a time when, you know, it was very dominated by 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 white uh, athletes, even well into the 70s. And, you know, black quarterbacks were pretty much unheard of. Or, I mean, I even looked at yesterday, you know, the Pittsburgh Steelers punter was black. And, you know, about the only one, other one I could think of was Reggie Roby back in the day for the Dolphins. And, you know, we, we just look at the, the how many teams now have black quarterbacks and they're excelling, you know. You know, Doug Williams back in the, the the late '80s was an MVP, Super Bowl MVP for the for Washington, and now you know the best football player on the planet is a black quarterback, Patrick Mahomes. And I guess if there was one sport that I do kind of wish we would see more advances with with uh, black people, it would be baseball. And that's kind of weird to say, but there's just not that many black people that play baseball anymore. You know, the 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 a lot of black kids are more drawn towards basketball and uh, and football. And even in even in many cases, soccer, and uh, we're just we just don't see, you know, the 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 black representation in baseball much anymore. And uh, boy, you know, you look at that Royals World Series team, and boy, how much fun was like Lorenzo Cain to watch, and you know, Gerard Dyson was the the spark plug off the bench and a spot starter, and you know, even Terrence Gore and the speed that he brought to that team. I mean, it was just a lot of fun seeing those kind of guys out there and uh you know there, there was a, obviously a time where black baseball players were dominant in the sport and uh we just unfortunately we just don't see much of that anymore yeah it's amazing i i, I got to visit actually with the curator 
of the Negro League Museum, which is in Kansas City, um, and the stories about uh, the talent that was in the Negro Leagues before um, black players were actually allowed to um, play on a major league roster. Uh, they actually did play some exhibition games between the major league all-stars and the Negro league all-stars. And I believe the Negro league all-stars won something around the effect of, they played like 10 times. And I think they won seven of those games, something to that effect. Wouldn't um, surprise me. Yeah. Um, and he, it was just, it was amazing. And, like I said, it's it's come a long ways, and but yes, there, there there's there's more ways to go. But I just thought it was kind of fitting to um and to end in today with talking about you know the impact that Dr. Martin Luther King had, and I think is still having on the world and and certainly the world of sports today. Yeah, absolutely. If you ever get a chance to go to Memphis, definitely visit the American Civil Rights Museum where uh, Dr. King was assassinated at. All right. Well, again, if you want to look at the midseason tournament week schedule, the Warriors are on Saturday, Jayhawks Tuesday and Saturday this week. Just please go to adasterradio.com and the sports page and the full schedule will be up there again, evolving all week till we get to the finals on Friday and Saturday. But for tonight, for the view from the press box for Brad Hallier, this is Scott Hogan. God bless. Have a great week.